verses 15 through 21. And I'm just going to read it today here. Ephesians 5, we're in the NIV, 15 through 21. Paul is catching up with, well, I'm catching up with what Paul was saying uh, through Tom last week um, about walking in the light. And he continues here in verse 15. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Can I get an amen? Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. What we've been doing all morning here. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is forever settled in heaven. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And it reveals your heart for us. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, as we gather here today, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would glorify your Father. I pray that you would make his heart known to our hearts. I pray that you would speak to each one of us and apply this passage exactly how you want to apply it to our lives. We trust you. We surrender to you. We ask you to have your way. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. So, yeah, so we just got back from Quito, Ecuador, which, not to be confused with the diet, spelled differently, Quito. Um, And I thought the joke would be funnier. That was, (laughs) see, I'm owning my dadness right now. Um, And uh, if you haven't been there, the city is 9,000 feet up in the Andes Mountains. So if you've been to Denver and you found it hard to breathe, just double that. That's where we were. Um... And then, not only that, one day we decided to take the cable car, the Teleferico, up to the top of these mountains overlooking the city. And you're in the city, and it's just overwhelming. 3.2 million people, right? So larger than San Diego by almost a million people. Um, and, And here we go, up the cable car, and the city starts to sprawl out in front of you. And you realize how vast it is, 20 miles long, five miles wide between this mountain pass. And you get up to the top, and it's breathtaking, literally, because you can't breathe. It's so high. But also, it's just beautiful. And I found myself, like, just amazed by how surreal it was. Just, your brain can barely take in how many people it is. And you just try to focus on, like, a city block that looks like a Lego block way down there. And how many people are represented? How many people are within uh, 3.2, actually? Statistically, that's how many people are there. And that's 3.2 million stories. 3.2 million people that day that as I'm sitting up there enjoying what little oxygen I can and just, just being at peace as uh, the green mountains fold in and kiss these gorgeous blue clouds that are floating through and it's sunshiny one minute, and then you're in a cloud, literally, the next minute. It's amazing, and I'm just, like, resting and enjoying and being at peace and thinking, 3.2 million people, what are they doing right now? 
think about my life. I think about all of us and how we try to cope with the busyness of this city and the busyness of life and running to and fro and all that kind of stuff and thinking how many of them right now are turning on a screen or turning up the music or turning over a bottle or, or, or just trying to find some way to cope with all the busyness. And here I am up here just enjoying God and, and just in awe of His creation. In other words, I was experiencing far more reality in that moment than I thought possible. But I started thinking how many of them in their efforts to try to cope with reality are actually trying to experience less and less reality. Numbing their minds, shutting the world off. You know, like how many of them are are, you know, going to those augmented reality glasses. Have you guys seen those? Where you shut the whole world out and it like takes you to a different place. Which they should do that if they're down there in the city. They should definitely not do that up in the mountain pass. Because it would be like that Pokemon Go guy who was walking around and fell off the cliff. You guys hear about that? I was thinking, oh my gosh. So anyway, this passage, this passage gives us a picture of something far more interesting with how to cope with difficult times in life. Because difficulties come for all of us. Trouble comes for all of us. And something I experienced up in that mountaintop as my eyes took in all the beauty and the sheer magnitude of it is, is what Paul talks about in this passage about life that's full of the Holy Spirit and that what God gives us in himself not only helps us to deal with reality, but helps us see more of it instead of trying to escape it. Because we all face difficult times, and in the face of of difficult times, life in the Spirit fills us up with wide-eyed wisdom, humble realism, and a surging joy within our hearts. And it's all here in these short verses. So you guys ready to talk about how to get that? Let's dive in. Point number one, why be filled with the Spirit? Let's look at verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Where it says, making the most of every opportunity, like if you're an old King James guy like me, uh, you guys know what it says there? Redeeming the time. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Which is kind of a, that's a, quite a concept. What, what does it mean to redeem the time? Paul says time's important. Don't waste it. Don't check out. Make the most of every opportunity. And the older I get, the more I understand how precious time is. There's this old quote I read a long time ago in a motivational book by Zig Ziglar, which I picked up simply because of his name. (laughs) And he said this, Time is our most precious commodity. It's the only thing we deal with which cannot be counterfeited, stolen, or placed in inventory. And he's right, because you can't exchange your time for money, right? Or or, I'm sorry, you, you basically, you can't, if somebody can't counterfeit your time, somebody can't steal your time from you, you can't take your time and put it on your shelf. The, about the only thing you can do is exchange your time for money. That's, that's what we do. It's called a job, right? We work really hard, and then, uh, uh, you know, we, we realize how precious time is. In fact, I'll ask you, like, what kind of return on investment are you getting for your time at the job that you're working? Are you making good money? Are you struggling along? Time is worth a lot more than money though and you may not be able to counterfeit it steal it or or put it on a shelf but paul says 
we can redeem it. What's that look like? How do we redeem the time? Now, the commentators here talk about like a marketplace and merchants and how basically if you find a really good deal on something, you can redeem the time by multiplying your efforts with it. Um, for instance, you go to Costco this week and you happen to walk in on the one day when they're having a ginormous sale on toilet paper. And they've got those big old boxes full of toilet paper, 10 rolls instead of $10. It's only a dollar, right? So now you scored. You can get like, instead of just a month's worth of toilet paper, you can get a year's worth of toilet paper. How do you redeem the time in that moment? You buy extra toilet paper, right? Yeah? In fact, one of the things you can do is not just buy enough to use. You can buy extra and you can flip it, right? <laughs> flip in toilet paper. And this is how you start a business. So um, this is what we're here to talk about. Uh, it, was, it was about, man, um, two years ago now, I was on my days off. I like to go to the thrift store. I found this old clay stein, you know, like a German mug. I thought, man, it's so pretty. It's so weird. It's so handmade. So I bought it. And um, one day I just started looking online and I found out that it was, uh, I think I paid 50 cents for it. And I found out that it, I, I could sell it for a lot more than I got it for. And I made $80 profit on the stein. And I was like, with my day off, I made $80. <laughs> just doing something I love. And so then I started going to the thrift store a lot more and looking for signs. And eventually it developed into this whole little side business where I'm teaching my son, Ivan, how to run a business and the ins and outs of that through selling ties. That's what we're doing. Buy ties at thrift stores and sell them online. And we're killing it. <laughs> Seriously. Like, I think last month we sold, gross profit, we sold about $2,000 worth of ties. That's called redeeming the tie. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I got a laugh on that one. <laughs> so, so y basically, y you know, the, the it's the same principle with retail. It's the same principle with the stock market. Buy low, sell high. And um, Nancy and I were having this conversation on the way up with the cable car, 20-minute ride way up to the top, 5,000 feet. And because uh, you're 14,000 feet up, it's crazy. She said, um, you know, babe, we're not getting any younger. I said, yeah. She said, uh, it's taking longer and longer for my body to recover. Because uh, we, we were working really hard all week. I said, yeah. She said, you can't work forever, right? I said, yeah. We need to do better with our money then. We need to invest it. Right? We, we can't just live paycheck to paycheck for the rest of our lives. Yeah, it's true. And what she's saying is true. We're getting older. We've got to find a better return on investment. We've got to find a way to redeem the time. And Paul tells us to make the most of every opportunity to redeem the time. And he's not talking so much about money, even though that's where I've been for the last five minutes because I'm trying to make a point. He's talking about something far more important. He's talking about spiritual currency, what you're doing for the kingdom, kingdom investment, what you're doing for Christ, what treasures you're laying up for yourself in heaven. Those who you're called to reach for Christ, those in need around you that you're, you're loving, the, the least of these that you're serving, the gospel you're declaring and displaying with your daily life, make it count. Redeem the time. Why? Because, because the days are evil. Now, what does that mean? The days are evil. 
very distracting. It's a very small feather. It's floating around in sky. So uh, that is not a picture of me redeeming your time, by the way. That is <laughs> what does this mean? Well, I wanted to deep dive into this. In fact, I probably had about 40 minutes of sermon material on this, which I'm going to try to scrunch into about five minutes. But the short answer is this was a common Jewish phrase rooted in their language and in their culture and in their, their very history. It's the same thing that's been happening since the, the very beginning with the fall of humanity and sin and the, and the curse. That in order to bear fruit, you've got to deal with thorns. And in order to bear babies, you've got to deal with pain. And the prophet Amos talks about this at length in Amos chapter 5, which I recommend you read. But he says basically because of sin, time flies too quickly and the soil is deplete and you'll work harder for less return and you'll send a hundred soldiers out and only ten will return and the days are here these evil days he says where you build houses and you won't even be able to rest in them and you'll plant vineyards and you won't be able to drink from them but but to those who seek god there's opportunity so paul's referencing that it's it's the same way in this world in this in this world you know Things are difficult. It's what Nancy was saying. Babe, we got to work for, m- we got to get a better return on our investment. But there are opportunities to be had to redeem the time. Uh, a good picture of this really briefly is the story of Joseph, which through a series of unfortunate events, or fortunate, he ends up in Egypt, and God sends Pharaoh a dream. You guys know the story? Seven fat cows, seven lean cows. It's a nightmare. And Pharaoh's like, what does it mean? And God sends Joseph with an interpretation. And Joseph says, we're going to have seven years of plenty, and we're going to have seven lean years of famine, like the world has never seen. And God provides for Pharaoh because Pharaoh becomes listens to God's righteous people. Because Pharaoh, in that sense, pursues God and does what God says. Egypt is saved from the evil times, and they become more powerful and Israel is saved, and they find this happy place in Egypt. Joseph redeemed the time in the days of evil. Just as there's difficult times in the material world, there are difficult times in the spiritual world. Paul's making a metaphor. He's making a parallel from that physical world that the Jewish world was so um, familiar with to the spiritual world that they're facing because the church, at this point, is in persecution. You're hiding for your faith. Can you imagine if today we had to meet in a catacomb, a burial ground, so that nobody would disturb us? We had to keep things down and quiet. And Christians are being chased and persecuted and eventually thrown to lions and killed for sport. And Paul says, the evil days are upon us, guys. We've got to redeem the time. We've got to make the most of every opportunity. How? How? How can we do that? And that's point number two. He says, be filled. Look at verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, which is just a fun word to say. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. When you face difficulty, when you face evil days, you can check out or you can check in. And Paul is saying, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Right at the heart of this, Paul makes a comparison and a contrast. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And most commentators look at that and they say, why in the world did he bring up getting drunk? What does that have to do with anything? (laughs) And the answer is, there must be some way in which being drunk is both like 
being filled with the Spirit and unlike being filled with the Spirit. Because there'd be no warrant for a warning if there wasn't some similarity, and there'd be no need for a warning if there wasn't some dissimilarity. So let's ask the question, how is being drunk like being filled with the Spirit? And how is it unlike it? Now the sermon gets interesting. You guys remember, uh, first of all, how's it like it? You guys remember the book of Acts? Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit first falls? And they speak in tongues and they're running all over the place and they spill out in the streets and they're proclaiming all of the miracles of God. They're speaking the gospel with great joy and with boldness. And everybody sees them says, they're drunk. They're super wasted right now. Why? It's because of the the boldness and the joy. People were only used to seeing that kind of representation of humanity when somebody got drunk. Somebody got toasted, right? They're standing in public. They're praising God and telling everybody about God's miracles. And that's why people look at them and say, these guys must be drunk. Why? Because alcohol gets rid of your inhibitions. The things you're afraid of sort of melt away, and there's a braveness and a happiness, and things start to emerge that weren't quite there when you were sober, right? It is the weirdest thing. So I'm trying to recapture this mountaintop experience, and this week I go to the beach, which is not like a mountaintop, but it's fairly close, and it's nature and beautiful, and sitting there, and I'm just like, oh, just enjoying the sound of the ocean, and I just start praying, and I'm journaling, and all of a sudden I just, like, see, boom, plop down, and I look, and there's a, uh, a young lady who has decided that um, beach yoga is her thing. The problem is she's very drunk, and she is doing beach yoga and not doing it, if you know what I mean. Getting into these awesome stands and falling down so hard and then just getting up like this and looking around to see who looked at her and then back into, you know, wounded warrior pose. I don't know what they're called. I don't do yoga. I hope that's not offensive. I really don't know what they're... Okay, anyway. Um, it was kind of jarring, kind of distracting, right? So, but here's the deal. Why, why is she doing that? She's bold. She's courageous. She's full of joy. She just smashed her face in the sand, and she's smiling. Why? She's drunk, dude. She was totally drunk. Being brave and being happy is something that being drunk brings, but also something that the Spirit brings. How about you? Let me ask you. Has anybody ever been astonished by your boldness and joy in the spirit? I felt that at times. Right? I've been like so alive with God's heart and so aware of his glory. You just stop caring about all the things you cared about. You don't care as much about what people think about you. You're just like lost. Man, God is so good. His glory is so far above everything else I'm experiencing. It, it's kind of like that old song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look Full in His wonderful face and the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace and just like those become more than lyrics when you experience that you start sharing stories of grace with people you start giving the gospel to people who you otherwise might be more in inhibited from doing that has anybody been astonished by your boldness and joy in some ways being drunk is like being filled with the spirit in other ways it's very unlike being filled with the spirit and here's how Paul seems to intuitively know something that we know nowadays medically and scientifically, and that is alcohol makes you feel brave and happy because it's a depressant. You guys know that? 
It's a depressant. So it's a, a chemical categorized as a depressant. You say, well, if it's a depressant, why does it make you feel brave and happy? Well, it depresses the part of your brain, uh, diminishes the function. It, it basically restricts brain ability so that a drunk person sees less of reality than they did before. So the things you were afraid of, the things that were inhibiting you, the things that were holding you back start to melt away, and then you're, you're brave and happy because you don't know any better. In other words, alcohol makes you brave and happy by depressing your brain and showing you less of reality. But the fullness of the Spirit operates in exactly the opposite way. Look at verses 15, 16, and 17. Listen to these words. Paul says, I want you to be wise, not foolish. I want you to be very careful, or literally, intensely aware. The, the word there is walk circumspectly. Be so aware of your surroundings. And then he says in 17, I want you to understand. Understanding, wisdom, intense awareness of what's going on. Paul is seeking a higher level of mental functioning. Right? Now how are we going to get that? He says in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Because the, the fullness of the Spirit, unlike alcohol, doesn't make you brave and happy, doesn't make you courageous and joyful by showing you less of reality, but by showing you more. It's a, The best example I have for this is in uh, it's the story of Elisha in 2 Kings 6. And he's in a city with his servant. They're surrounded by all these armies. You guys familiar with the story? And he's just walking around happy-go-lucky. He's fine. He's not depressed. He's got confidence. He's got joy. He's got courage. And his servant is just melting down with fear. And the servant says, we are surrounded by all of the armies. How are you, like, walking around with joy and courage? And Elisha says, well, I guess Elisha could have done two things at that point. He could have said, here you go, buddy. It's called Johnny Walker. You know, <laughs> enjoy this nice whiskey. And then you'll go to sleep. You'll forget about the whole thing. You're going to be fine. You'll be happy. You'll be courageous. He could have given him alcohol. That's not what he does, is it? Elisha, Elisha turns down and gets down on his knees. And he prays that the father, that God would open his eyes to see more of reality. And as the servant walks up to the top, he sees, yeah, there's all these armies surrounding him, but sprawled out in the heavens, far above the armies, far greater than the armies, are the armies of God. The chariots of fire, the host of angels. And, and he sees all that God is capable of, that, that God is real, that God is here, that God is working a plan, that God has power beyond any of the situations that he's facing. And that's what we get in the fullness of the Spirit. The fullness of the Spirit is not giving you joy and courage by showing you less of reality, but by showing you more of reality. By showing you God and what He's doing and giving you a, a mountaintop perspective, as it were, instead of just a temporary escape. No, I mean, right now that brings us back to kind of the series we were in before Ephesians, the Gospel according to John. And if you look at verses or chapters 14 through 16, where Jesus says, I'm going to go away, but I will send the Holy Spirit for you. And uh, one verse is John uh, 16, 13 through 15, where he says, basically, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify me. He will take what I'm telling you, what I've done, and he'll, he will take what is mine and he will show it to you. He will apply the truth of God to your heart. The Holy Spirit's job is to take all the things that God's done, 
to take all the things that God's done in Christ, all the things that God's done for you, all the things that you are in Christ, who you are, and communicate that to you. Uh, to, to make it so true to your brain and your mind, and the reason of your mind, to make it so real to the deepest emotions of your heart that who God is and what he's done for you in Christ and, and who you are in the gospel becomes the most real thing to you. It becomes the guiding force of your life. It, it dominates you. So that the things that used to deflate you don't deflate you anymore. And the things that used to inflate you don't inflate you anymore. And the things that used to freak you out and scare you all the time don't scare you anymore because you see all of reality. Alcohol is a depressant. Alcohol gets rid of negative thoughts. It gets rid of fears by depressing parts of your brain, by showing you less of reality. But here's what the fullness of the Spirit does. It's, it's the fullness of the Spirit is not some like frothy, bubbly joy that blocks out all the problems of life. C.S. Lewis said it this way. I, I love this quote. He says, I didn't go to Christianity to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. <laughs> the fullness of the Spirit is not some bubbly joy that helps us forget our troubles, but it gives you a heightened, intense understanding of the truth and who God is. And he's high and lifted up above everything you're facing. And what he's doing in the world. You say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I believe he's got over my life, but man, there's so much stuff out of control. It's out of your control, but it's not out of his control. And that enables you to triumph over your troubles. The fullness of the Spirit is a supernaturally charged cognition that brings about a heart condition of courage and joy. It's a heightened intense ex uh, existential moment by moment reality and understanding of God and his salvation that begins to dominate your life and so that nothing else does so that nothing else dominates you no fears no guilt no shame nothing else takes control why because you see more of reality that's the fullness of the spirit it's not beer goggles that dim your world and it's not Google Cardboard that shuts out reality so you can escape into some augmented reality. It's not less reality, it's more. And as a result, you have three things. How do we know we're full of the Spirit? You'll have three things. What are the marks of somebody who's full of the Spirit? You get wide-eyed wisdom, humble realism, and surging joy. Look at verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Paul gives the same advice to the church that I give my kids. Why? I've quoted this scripture to them a thousand times. I, in the Old English, it says, walk circumspectly. Circum, like a circle, speckly, like you're looking. You're aware of everything that's going on around you. And I live in downtown. And every day in downtown, you see people going the wrong way on the one way. Right? So you got to train your kids unless you're going to have leashes on them and walk around like you're dog walking somebody. You have to train your kids. You have to train your own mind to be aware of go what's going on around you. Now we have electric scooters that are driven by drunks in downtown. Like, just be aware, people. That's for free. Just take that one. <laughs> Paul says, walk wisely, walk circumspectly. He's not talking about physical dangers, though. Not just physical dangers. He's also talking about spiritual dangers. You have to walk circumspectly. What's he talking about here? He's talking about wisdom. 
Wisdom is applied knowledge. You know, there's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom, right? And this is a big topic that I'm just going to touch on. Knowledge is what you learn in a classroom. Wisdom is how you apply that knowledge to life, right? We've got a couple doctors in the audience, right? You don't get your doctor degree, your PhD in medicine by taking some online classes and saying, I'm now a doctor. I'm ready to perform surgery, right? Wet nurse. No. Right? What, what do you have to do? What's a do what else does a doctor do besides classes? Anybody know what's it called? Residency. Yeah. Why? Because all that knowledge, those years of knowledge in the classroom are going to fail you if you don't learn how to apply them in the thousand life situations that life is going to throw at you in the hockey. Just knowing it isn't enough. You've got to experience it. And knowledge says, be the sign says walk. I'm just going to walk across the street. Wisdom says not everybody reads the sign. There are people who run red lights. There are people who go the wrong ways on one ways. Guys, you need applied wisdom, right? You get worldly wisdom from living, but you get heavenly wisdom from where? The Holy Spirit. And Paul's already said this. Look back at Ephesians 1. Paul says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, only those who are filled with the Spirit of God have His wisdom. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 14. He says, The Spirit of truth that the world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. He will show you things in this world that the, the rest of the world cannot see because they've not been filled with the Spirit. Are you catching this? So it's kind of like Elisha's servant. Many people in our world are crippled with fear. They don't see more of reality, and they try to cope with it with all these coping mechanisms and functional saviors. But we have the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Be more aware of all that God is at work doing in your life. Be more aware of the reality that's here. He gives you eyes to be more aware, to walk circumspectly, to, to see God glorified over your circumstances, to, to remind you of the gospel and to make God's truth known to you. Let me ask you, is that, is that, your, is that the experience of your daily life right now? Is that what your life is like? Do you experience the presence of God filling your life to such a degree that it makes you aware that he is large and in charge and over it all. And it fills you with faith and hope. Do, do you have the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Are you experiencing more and more patience and peace? Or are you experiencing more and more fear and guilt and shame and pride? So one result of the Holy Spirit is wide-eyed wisdom too. The next one is humble realism. And we said wisdom is applied knowledge, right? It's not like this high lofty, ethereal, up there in the clouds kind of knowledge, but it's down to earth where the rubber meets the road. To be wise means to be down to earth. To be wise means to be realistic, not idealistic, not naive, not having rose-colored glasses. A wise person is savvy. A wise person knows what life is really like, and they have an honest assessment of themselves. Raw reality. Warts and all. You see yourself in the mirror, and you can say, yes, that is a pimple. I have a pimple. And you can own it. <laughs> Why? It's real. 
raw reality. You're not shying away from certain aspects of yourself. You tracking? So look at the very end of the passage where it says this, and this is one of my favorite verses and one of the toughest ones to deal with. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mm. Yeah, just put that one on your fridge. That's, that's the Bible verse of the t-shirt for next year. It says, submit to one another. That's right. That'll sell like hotcakes. <laughs> Submission means to humble yourself for others, before others. How? Why? Out of reverence, out of the sense of awe and reverence you have when you consider others. What's he talking about? He's talking about what Paul talks about in, in Philippians, where he says this, and I'm going to read it. Now, I don't want to walk all over the sermon for next week, so I'm just going to make this point. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. He submitted to the Father's will. He submitted even to death, even death on a cross. See, when you see how Jesus Christ humbled himself and died. When you see how he trusted his father as authority in his life, when you see how Christ submitted in your place, it'll free you to live humbly and in a posture of mutual submission to other believers because now you know your place in creation. Because now you know you were so broken, you deserve to die. But you were so loved that he came to die in your place. That's humbling. That's reality. That, that shows that you're known as you are and that you're loved as you are. It, in the gospel, as it's applied to your life by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are free to love and serve and humbly submit to others as you've been loved and served in Christ. And we'll talk more about that next week. But the Holy Spirit results in wide-eyed wisdom, humble realism. Thirdly, briefly, the Holy Spirit results in surging joy. And some of you need to hear this today because joy is in short supply these days. Verse 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Being with the filled with the Spirit is almost always associated with joy in the Scripture. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We're poor, yet we possess everything. In other words, even though we're often sad by life situations, we're never really unhappy. What's he talking about? The fullness of the Spirit brings you a joy based on God. It's a heightened understanding of God. It's supernaturally charged cognition about God and His salvation. The alternative to being filled with the Spirit is getting high. Getting high on drugs, getting high on alcohol, getting high on escapism, getting high uh, on your own success. You know, when people say, I'm on a roll. I'm not thinking any negative thoughts. I put those away. I am just happy. Everything is fine and dandy. I read 15 books on self-help in the last weekend, and I am great. <laughs> That's not what being filled with the Spirit is. Right? Christianity is not the power of positive thinking. Christianity is not the silver linings playbook. Christianity is not pasting on smiles when your world is falling apart. I went to a church this last year on my sabbatical, no names, and I love the church. They, they were awesome in so many ways, but one category that just kind of bugged me a little 
everybody was smiling so hard it looked like their faces hurt. And then as the service went on, you know, I'm a pastor. I work with people. You learn to pick up on little things. You could just tell, like, their eyes weren't smiling, some of them. But they knew they had to smile because they're at church. And I have the joy of my salvation. (laughs) You look a lot more like you're just gritting your teeth and trying to bear it right now. That's, That's not the kind of joy that the Holy Spirit gives us. In the Holy Spirit, you find true joy, even in difficult times. And the reason why you have true joy is not that you're looking at you. I'm on a roll, you know? No, come on, man. Maybe you are. <laughs> That's great. And you should have joy if you're on a roll. But the reason why you still have joy, no matter what the circumstances, is because you're looking at God and what he's done for us in the gospel. And the Holy Spirit calls that to mind and applies it to our hearts, and, and that results in great joy. Uh, Tim Keller said it this way in one of the sermons I listened to. He said that the Holy Spirit is like the stars in the sky. They get brighter as the night gets darker. And that's the kind of joy that you get through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. It's it's a joy that comes from the fullness of the Spirit and goes hand in hand with a wide-eyed wisdom and a humble realism. True joy can actually get stronger as your circumstances change. How? Because the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see more of reality, and you get more than more than just a mountaintop view. You get a view from eternity. You have eternal life waiting for you beyond this life. There is coming a day where war and sickness and hunger and death and disease and pain will be over forever. The evil times are coming to an end. Death is coming to an end. Sorrow is coming to an end. There is hope beyond this life. One day scripture says death will be what? Swallowed up in victory. That's your future. If you're in Christ, that's your future. That's the context for the life you're living right now. That's the greater context for the problem you're facing right now. That's the eternal mountaintop perspective you get to live from every day by the power of the Spirit. And you get to experience that perspective of eternity eternity. Victor Frankl talked about it. He said it's the subspecie eternitatis. So in, in his famous book, Victor Frankl, who's not a believer, but he said the only way he got through the Holocaust was by having living from the perspective of eternity, which is a, a phrase that had been keyed in by Baruch Spinoza. So if you're a philosophy buff, I'm lighting you up right now, okay? Baruch Spinoza talks about the only way to deal with sorrows in this life is to do it from a perspective of eternity. That's what we get in the gospel, If you go up a little further, you see more of life, and that that big problem that was in your face seems smaller. You keep going up that cable car, and pretty soon it's all laid out before you. And you realize how small that is, and you get the eternal perspective. And we know that nothing, not even death, can separate us from his love. I'm going to read this, Romans 8. Familiar passage, but we need to read it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When you get a higher perspective, when it's applied to your heart through the Spirit, you become a victor, not a victim. And that results in gratitude. 
in every situation, that result in songs bubbling up in your heart and in community, that result in the most glorious Christian community because we are not pasting on smiles, but we are encouraging one another's hearts, reminding one another of the gospel, allowing the Holy Spirit to speak through us to one another, to encourage one another in the darkest circumstances of life, that there is hope beyond this life and there's even hope within it right now because of who our God is. Is your joy like that? Do you have joy like that? Do you have, it's like the stars, it gets brighter as circumstances in your life get darker. And I think all of us probably fall in one of two categories right now. You're either going to say, I don't know anything about that. Or you're going to say, I know a little about, bit about that, but I definitely want to know a lot more about it. I want to experience that more. Question, how can you be filled with the Spirit of God? And I just want to make this point as we're wrapping things up. If you're a believer, if you've believed the gospel, the only way you've believed the gospel is because the Holy Spirit applied that truth of God to your life. You already have the Holy Spirit if you are a believer. But just like a balloon always has air in it, even when it's deflated, there's a little bit in there. <laughs> Many of us live our lives not full and inflated with the power of the Holy Spirit. Tracking? That's as quick as I could make that. <laughs> Balloon analogy. <laughs> How can you be filled? You have to look at the gospel and let it transform you deeply. Did you know Jesus was filled with the Spirit? You know, he was baptized with the Spirit at the beginning of his ministry, but then you see him walking around, and he's the man of sorrows. He's weeping over Jerusalem. He's weeping over Lazarus, weeping all the time. But then in this moment in uh, Luke 10, I think it's in Matthew 11 also, where Jesus exploded with joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's read it real quick. At this time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Jesus had an explosion of joy. Why? What is he looking at? What's 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 he so interested in that he's so filled with the Holy Spirit? It's the same thing Paul's talking about here. How did it happen? What's Jesus noticing? First of all, we learn here that if you find God, it is not because you're so smart or because you're so good or because of anything you can possibly do. The only way anybody finds God is if God reveals himself to them. But who does he reveal himself to? He doesn't reveal himself to the educated. He doesn't reveal himself to the accomplished. He doesn't reveal himself to those who are so wise in their own eyes. Their cup is full. They don't have room for anything else from God. He reveals himself to what the scripture says, little children. Which is, uh, of course, a spiritual phrase, the helpless, the weak, the people who know they have nothing. Do you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you're a God of grace. Because you don't divide the world into the good and the bad. You provide the world into, you, you divide the world, rather, into the, the proud and the helpless. You divide the world into the proud and the helpless. I praise you, Father, because you're a God of grace, because you save by grace alone and not by works. We can't do anything. Jesus looked at the gospel, and it filled him with the Holy Spirit. Je and Jesus is perfect. Why would he need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? He's God, right? Like, how, 
I don't get it. Why would Jesus need fullness of the Holy Spirit? All I know is that Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to get through his life and face the things he was facing. He was getting ready to take the whole weight of the world on his shoulders. And if God incarnate needed the Holy Spirit to give him joy, what makes us think we can do it without it? How did he get it? Jesus looked at grace. He looked at the gospel. Look at this. Let's do that right now. In closing. There's a a place in one of the Psalms, Psalm 51, where David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And why does David say that? He says that because he's terrified because he just biffed it really bad. You guys know the story, maybe? David has just done the most atrocious sin in his life, and this psalm is a prayer of repentance. And he says, God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why? Well, it's right there in the name, Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is holy. He doesn't dwell where sin is. Sin can't remain in his presence. And David says, God, I know that I deserve to be abandoned. I know that my sin drives me from your presence, but please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And guess what? God did not take his Holy Spirit from him. The Holy Spirit stayed with him. Even though he was a sinner, even though he deserved to be abandoned, there sinful David saying, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And God didn't. And centuries later, the ultimate David, the, the, the greater David, the descendant of David, the true king, the sinless Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what he's saying? He's saying, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He's saying, I know I'm on a cross right now, but don't take your presence from me. Don't, don't hide your face from me. But God did. Why? Why did God abandon Jesus? Why did God remove the Holy Spirit? The sinful David deserved to lose the Holy Spirit, and yet the sinless greater David did not deserve to lose the Holy Spirit. But the sinful David kept the fullness of the Spirit, and the sinless David, Jesus Christ, lost the fullness of the Spirit. Why? Because Jesus Christ was standing in our place. He was our substitute, and he was abandoned. Jesus got the abandonment you and I deserve that David did. Why? He, he lost the fullness of the Spirit so that you and I could have it. Even though we're sinners. Now, would you look at that today? Just for a second, would you let the Holy Spirit speak to you through that? And would you just, in your heart, begin to say, Father, I praise you. You're a God of grace. You saved me by grace. In fact, bow your heads with me, if you will, and I just want the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Are, are you bored right now in Christianity, in your faith? Is there like a deadness in your heart right now, a numbness, a coldness? If so, it's because you're forgetting grace. It's not real to your heart. Are you having trouble with anybody? Are you holding on to unforgiveness? Are you looking down at people? Are you angry at people? It's because you've forgotten grace. It hasn't melted and humbled your heart. Are you fearful? Are you anxious like Elisha's servant? Are you afraid of situations? Are you afraid God's going to let you down? It's because you've forgotten grace. You've forgotten the fact that God is never, ever going to abandon you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
But if you will pause right now today, regardless of what you're feeling, wherever the negative emotions, fears, addictions, wherever they lie at in your heart and in your life, if you'll pause and look at what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. And look at the grace that's there. Just look at it. And say, God, I want, I want that to massage my heart throughout my day. I want an explosion of joy. I want the joy of the Holy Spirit. Do, do you want to be filled with the Spirit right now? Look at the gospel of grace right now and see how in the most evil of all the evil days that ever existed where the Son of God was murdered. In that moment, God provided the most beautiful opportunity for all of us. Jesus was filled with the Spirit and then abandoned by it so that we could be filled with the Spirit. And if you'll allow Him to have His way, if you'll drink deeply from the life that's yours in the Holy Spirit, if you'll let Him fill your life, you will find what it is that we're talking about. A wide-eyed listener, a humble realism, and a certain joy. Let's pray. Father, I pray for everybody right now in the sound of my voice. I pray that you would fill us with knowledge of your Son who loved us and gave himself for us. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. I don't want to go around like a half-filled balloon. I want to be so full of you that everybody around me can see it. So we don't need to escape, Lord, so, but so that we'll energetically dive into the work you have for us. So we won't need to grumble and complain, but our hearts will overflow with thanksgiving. So our mind won't be plagued with depressions and anxieties and regrets, but, but with hope and with joy. God, turn our drinking songs into joyful songs of Free us from the desire to play God in our own lives, to take control of our lives, to be our own king, not to trust anybody, not to submit to anybody, to be suspicious and wary and worn out, running around trying to be in control. And God, fill us with your spirit so we find ourselves free to trust you and even to trust others in our life because we believe they love us and you love them. I pray that fear would give way to hope in this place. I pray that as we come together and pray and, and remember your sacrifice for us in the gospel that sorrow would give way to joy and that regret would give way to thanksgiving and gratitude because your spirit is alive and filling us with the best that you have. Help us to see all the evil days we're facing through the lens of your coming kingdom. In Jesus' name.